Hi, everyone. Welcome to our latest episode. I'm Vivian, one of the co-hosts of the Pulse podcast. Today, we have Jack Stoddard, most recently the past Chief Operating Officer of Haven and Chief Strategy Officer and Chief Operating Officer of Accolade. Our purpose is to capture the pulse of healthcare innovation that spans business leaders and others across the healthcare community. We are super excited to have Jack join us today. Jack is a senior operating leader with over two decades of experience applying technology, data science, people, and design thinking to improve the healthcare system. Here, Jack. Uh, you've had an impressive career transforming healthcare companies. Can you give us a brief summary of your career path to date and what were the key career transitions and decisions you made along your journey? Sure. Well, it's, thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. I started out in my career right out of undergrad in the nonprofit uh, film and entertainment business. And what that taught me early on as I look back was how do you build a business with limited resources where you had to really be thoughtful about where to invest and how to grow? And secondly, uh, how to align around a mission that was bigger than just making money. And so that was really sort of some of my early DNA. And from there, I actually went to business school. Uh, I went to Harvard and got my MBA. And then from there, I actually was looking to go back into entertainment. And what I realized is that the for-profit world was really not what was appealing to me. The product didn't fit for me when I started to look at you know, DreamWorks and Disney and those things. And I got attracted to healthcare. And so I've been in healthcare ever since going to, to business school. And what was appealing to me was the mission, obviously, if you could find a way to connect it back to an end patient. And then secondly, was just the complexity and the massive social impact that you could have if you could try to be on the, the right side of fixing that important problem. So I went to the advisory board company when it was still a private growth company. Joined there when it was 50 million. We were getting ready for growing it and ultimately got ready for its IPO. But that was in the late 90s, and I was watching the rise of the internet and technology and data. And so I said, that's going to be a huge part of the rest of my career. And so at that point, I looked for health companies that were tech-enabled with data and joined a company called Health Dialogue, which was where I first got exposed to the ability to impact provider treatment patterns by engaging consumers and helping them have better decisions about their options uh, when working with their care providers. Uh, grew that company very rapidly, so it was a $30 million company when I joined, and it went up to a $300 million company very quickly. And it was that growth that attracted uh, the folks over at United to call. And so when, at that point in my career, I had done it at growth scale, and I was interested in just going over to see what it would be like at United Healthcare. And it was an interesting time for me because the world was beginning to look for population health solutions. And the part of United that I joined was really an internal holding company of different capabilities that were focused on managing the fully insured book within the different managed care organizations. And so they had capabilities in case management, disease management, nurse line, NICU, Cairo. And the reason that I joined was I was able to be part of a team that brought those together and pointed those at the external market, which is where I had helped build and scale companies. The nurse line company was called Optum, so we took that brand and we put it on top of that group of capabilities, and that was a fun time to be there was when Optum was actually launched officially. Did that for a number of years, and then what I found was that it was hard to innovate at the same scale that I was used to and at the same rate. And so when you have legacy people process tech, I found that you could only go so far in the innovation curve. And so I spun out of there 
moved here to Philadelphia about 10 years ago to help start a company called Accolade, which we took from you know, an idea and we've scaled pretty nicely. Did that for about almost nine years and then took a little time, met up with the folks at Devoted Health, helped them think about launching that company, did some consulting private equity things, and then um, was asked by Atul Gawande to help him get the Haven initiative off the ground. So I did that for about a year and now I'm doing some other things that are exciting in terms of board work and some additional private equity work, but I'm stealthfully looking at sort of a new co-idea as well. Awesome. Thanks for sharing your really yeah. impressive career. We've obviously could ask you like 100 questions <laughs> about your career, but we'd love to first start out about um, talking about Accolade, yeah. given the strong anticipation of the IPO in 2020. Also, for those in the room who aren't familiar with Accolade, could you give us a brief overview of what Accolade does? Yeah, so as I said, about 10 years ago, we had an idea and a real opportunity to think about building a company from the consumer back. So a lot of healthcare companies were always built from sort of the data or the operating model outwards. And so we really took the opportunity to look at the patient experience. And what we found is that if you could actually give every family a trusted resource that knew them, knew their benefits, and knew the healthcare system, that you could, one, drive up engagement, and second, you could then use that engagement and the trust that you find with people to actually just help them use the system more appropriately. And given the amount of waste and inefficiency in the healthcare system, the hypothesis we had when we started the company was that you could drive uh, a couple of different outcomes. One, you could just improve the experience for people and they would have a better satisfaction. Two, they wanted to get the right care in the first place, at the, in the right setting the, in the first place. The belief then was if you could help them do that, that ultimately you could lower costs by just taking waste out of the system. And so we built a company, tech-enabled, a lot of data, but it was also a services component. So the human element of being able to solve complex healthcare issues was a critical piece of it. And we partnered with large self-funded employers who had an interest in one, improving the experience for their employees and their families, but also finding innovative ways to take costs out. We all know there's blunt force instruments that you can use to reduce costs in healthcare. You can increase price or cost sharing with your employees, or you can put up barriers to care. Most employers don't want to do that, and they actually wanted the kind of solution that could improve the experience and ultimately take waste out of the system. And so we did that for a number of years, found that it was a really interesting formula, and then we had to figure out how to scale it. So we scaled it to a number of different employers, and it's now serving probably a couple million people. Wow. Yeah, it's been fun to watch. Accolade has achieved amazing NPS scores of 70 plus compared to healthcare average of what I learned in class, 13, and helped reduce cost savings for employers from 15% and over. Yeah. I was wondering, like, from your perspective, how did Accolade achieve those results? What were the key strategic levers that you guys did to create such a great patient experience? Well, let me unpack each of those. So on the patient experience side, we were applying a lot of the same elements that great consumer products put towards their work. And we applied those to healthcare. And 10 years ago, there weren't a lot of people thinking about design thinking and applying uh, focus groups and really building from patient backwards. It sounds obvious now. You've probably been taught that a lot in the, the classes, but it's not intuitive to healthcare. And so we have did that. And what we found is that like any other great consumer product, when you give people a product that they want, 
you focus on their needs, not yours. You make it easy to access, so one place to go. Make it omni-channel, so mobile and telephonic, chat, you know, all the things that you need to do. Uh, and then really build a relationship with them. And when you get to know them and know what's important to them, especially in healthcare, given how personal it is, when people are very vulnerable, that to have a trusted expert who is really looking out for you is the kind of healthcare that people have never experienced. And so I think we kind of hit the market at a time where, you know, what we were comparing to was really low in terms right. of traditional health plan engagement and member services, where they really looked at the patient experience as an afterthought, right? It was a transaction to them, and we looked at it as an opportunity to build these relationships. And then we had to figure out how do you unlock the clinical and economic value of those relationships. And so we did a lot of work to do process mapping of the patient experience, and what we found is that there were a lot of errors that people incur if they were trying to self-navigate. For example, people would go to the ER when they could have gone to urgent care, they go to a specialist when they could have gone to primary care, or they get the wrong diagnosis, or they don't understand their treatment options. And so by mapping those out, what we found is that if you could just help people get the care that was right for them, it was their choice, but they wanted less invasive if they had that as an option. They wanted to use the system appropriately. And you map that also back to their benefit design, that their incentives were to use the system in a smart way, that that just drove a huge amount of, of waste out of the system. And so the the trend of these employers has been relatively flat, like 1% trend against competitors who were getting 6, 7, 8%. And it was a fun experience because you could drive home every night from work listening to these satisfaction scores because people would give us feedback and you could see the healthcare costs bending. And when you get those into alignment, it's a really interesting kind of mission to be part of. Right, so back in 2009, there weren't a lot of players in this space. They weren't really thinking about consumer first. Was it, did you get a lot of backlash from these employers in terms of the new model or were they super excited from the get-go? It is harder and slower than, it was tough on the sales side because you just had to explain to people how, you know, at the time there were 10 of us in Plymouth meeting Pennsylvania with an idea. And so you got to get a big employer to kind of take a bet on you. Fortunately, Comcast took that bet and it was mostly on our personal brands and a shared view of what it was possible. They titrated their risk by giving us a pilot group to go and prove it on. So it wasn't like they gave us access to their whole population base. Um, but then even as we were getting results, there's so many incumbents who are used to way of thinking, right? So you had to help educate employers about how to think differently about this. You had to help the benefits consultants and the intermediaries begin to think differently. And then, of course, you have all the incumbents who don't want things to change, right? So you had the health plans in particular who were in possession of the employer's data that you would say, well, why don't you give us that data so we can use it in a different way? Or we would ask the incumbents to change their business processes in terms of letting us take calls that used to go to member services, for example, or sharing you know, data with us or working out process flows. And so there's a lot of scars on the original team's back as we had to go and kind of fight through some of that existing <laughs> inertia and momentum to overcome it. Right. Um, but that's always the case. Like you look at sort of Lyft and Ubers and like the taxi driver, anybody who's <laughs> being forced to change because of technology and services are always gonna have a reason to resistant and it just takes a lot of perseverance and belief in your idea to continue to push through with it. How did you convince health plans to give you their patient data? Well, <laughs> uh, we were fortunate to have some really, uh, the employers realized <laughs> that it was their data, not the health plans data. And it requires them to say, look, 
this is the experience that I want for my employees and therefore we need to unleash the power of our data to do that. And so it really became getting them uh, to get behind it. And the responses from health plans varied. Like there were some who were very resistant just because they felt like they wanted to own a monopoly on the data. Some were more open to it but had technical reasons why they were resistant. And then there were some that were just great, right? Some just leaned right into it and said, hey, we're going to partner with you because they recognized the value that it would create for their employer, customer. And in many cases, they were rewarded for participating by actually getting more membership because the employer said, this is the kind of partner that's focused on my outcomes instead of trying to focus myopically on their self-interest. You were on the founding team of Accolade. How did the team sort of form in the beginning? Was it sort of, you know, you're, you've seen so much in the system and then you wanted to build something new? Or I guess I'm curious where it started. Yeah, it really started, it's kind of the origins, uh, and a lot of it goes back to the founding investors. So unlike a traditional venture model that took a business plan and then they put a small bet on a bunch of different portfolio companies, there was a group out of New York called Accretive, and what Accretive did is they actually studied big spaces. They found this to be a problem that probably could be addressed, and then their approach was then to assemble the management team, and their philosophy was, and I think it bears fruit, if you can get people who have built and scaled companies and put the best minds against a problem, that you're going to get a very interesting outcome. And so it really became eight or ten of us that came together, focused on that problem, got the anchor customer, and then began to scale from there. You know, it was a bet. My wife was like, well, you have a perfectly good job here in, you know, United. Like, where's Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania, and why are we going there? But uh, when you see what is possible and you get together with great capital partners and great uh, founding team, it, it becomes exciting to be part of, and you can actually kind of push through all those roadblocks that we just talked about. Where do you think are the key opportunities in the next three to five years for businesses and care coordination? and navigating health benefits, especially for employers? Well, I think you know, what's exciting is that the tailwinds of this market are, are really now here. When we started the company 10 years ago, we had a vision that everybody should have this kind of service. And we knew that Accolade <coughs> wouldn't have the capacity to pro provide it to everybody. But I think we've reached that tipping point because you now ask large employers, like, what is the most important health initiative you're going to put in front of your agenda and it's usually navigation and advocacy at this point. Nobody used those words 10 years ago and that was what we had to go create. If you look at the health plans, they're also realizing that this is the kind of service that both their members, the, the consumer want, but also what their employer customers are looking for. And so many of them are trying to transform their own operation, which to me is just validation that we've kind of created the model that is the right one for the end user and it ultimately, if executed well, is the way you can take out the excess waste in the system. So it sounds like working with employers was sort of the strategy that Accolade took. Do you think it's the best strategy moving forward or do you think we should go direct to consumers? Look, in healthcare, getting your operating model and your business model to work together is always one of the hardest parts. The challenge, I think, of a direct-to-consumer play is a couple of things in healthcare. One, your customer acquisition costs are really high to go into the direct-to-employer advertising. So there's some advantages of having an aggregator, in this case, the employer. The second is follow the money. And so while the consumer pays you know, 10 to 20%, depending on the design of the health plan, the rest of that's typically being 
paid by the self-funded employer or the health plan. And so I think figuring out, and that's why I was saying getting the business model to tie back to the operating model is important. And I think a lot of point solutions come to the market just thinking, well, we'll we're a great consumer product, so we'll go direct to consumer. But they didn't figure out sort of how the economic flows go and where the reimbursement or the revenue is going to come from. Healthcare is unique from other consumer markets in the sense that it's not like shopping for shoes or travel. Most people don't think about healthcare until they need it. And so part of what we had to solve is how can you be present when that arises? It's also very episodic for most people. It kind of, you're healthy, you have a healthcare crisis or an issue, and then it disappears. It, now, obviously, if you're chronic or you're elderly, that right. journey is different. But you really got to think about sort of what your value prop is on an ongoing basis or at that point in time and figure out how you're accessible to that consumer when they need it. Speaking of employers working with tech companies and working with maybe real estate companies, we'd like to dive into Haven. So that was your most recent career jump after Accolade. I know you're not permitted to tell us anything specific, but we'd love to hear <laughs> how it was like to work there. So you're right. I'm not allowed to share much. They're very uh, secretive about what they're working on. But it was an incredible life experience, right, to be able to, when Atul Gawande calls you and says, I've got a problem, will you help? Without even knowing what it is, the answer is yes. And you just want to go help people that are in it for the right reasons. And I would say what was unique about it was that unlike an accolade, which I just described to you, where we had a thesis of what the business would be, you could unlock this kind of value. The difference at Haven compared to accolade was there was a big alignment on the problem, but not yet around the answer. And so part of the time that I spent with the team getting Haven off the ground was, you know, one, we were just turning the lights on on a new startup, right? We had to just do all the stuff you do to attract the business, find real estate, turn it on. But the real work initially was not then building that product. It was figuring out where to focus. And it was such a big problem that we had to kind of figure out what are the different opportunities, who's already doing things in the market, and then make a couple of bets to say, here's where we think we can have a differentiated outcome if we were to focus on those four or five areas. And so that was probably the primary difference. But as you can imagine, being in a white, in a, you know, with a whiteboard with a tool and a few others in a room, it was a pretty exciting time and opportunity to be able to kind of lay out all those options and then map those against uh, the needs of the employers, right? The sponsors. Clearly, they were sending a message to the market that we're getting good benefits and good outcomes for their employees, but they felt that there was more to do in terms of uh, both improving experience as well as lowering costs. And that's what Haven was was chartered to do, is come up with a few of those options and go after it. We're excited to see what happens. As am I. So speaking of one component, Amazon, I'm curious, based on your opinion on big tech entering healthcare, Amazon has made a lot of inorganic, inorganic entries into healthcare space mm -hmm. outside of Haven. So they launched an exclusive line of OTC brands, and as well as the acquisition of PillPack that we all know mm -hmm. about. I'm curious, what do you think about Amazon's overall strategy into healthcare? I think big tech is certainly one to keep an eye on across the board in healthcare. Each of the primary players, I mean, certainly when you have a $3 trillion market that's growing at the rate it's growing and is largely able to dodge a lot of the macroeconomic issues, it's going to attract a lot of players. And if you look across, I think that each of the tech companies are playing to their strengths right now because that's where their DNA is. If you look at Alphabet, they clearly are are focusing on data, search, 
cloud, AI, and they're trying a bunch of different tests through Verily and through lots of you know Google Health and all these different places. Amazon, clearly they're playing to their strengths around the consumer. They know the supply chains. They have AWS. They have the home. And I think they're trying to figure out what are the different combos that you would play there. So PillPack, to your point, I think falls you know clearly into the supply chain side of things. And some of the other initiatives, you know, Amazon Care and some of their retails like OTC stuff. Apple clearly is betting on both the hardware with the iPhone, but the install base of users that that comes with. You've got the watch, you've got the Apple store. Think about how do you curate a set of different apps that could go through that access point that you have. And then I would throw Microsoft into the mix because they're sort of quietly coming in from the infrastructure layer outwards with Azure and doing work cloud and genomics and others. And they're actually getting, I think following their B2B sort of roots, they're actually probably getting a pretty interesting foothold with some of the incumbent players. And I would kind of watch that. I think where they're going to find challenges is where they start to get out of their sweet spot or where they're going to have to try new muscles that they may not have, which as we all know in healthcare, figuring out business models, you know, working with providers, health plans, you know, navigating the ecosystem is a, a different set of experiences that a lot of people from tech come into thinking, oh, we'll just fix this. And they realize, well, wait a second, there's a pretty steep learning curve. So do you think that overall tech companies need to hire more traditional healthcare leaders versus sort of starting out more on the tech side? You know, I think it's it really is kind of case by case dependent. And this is one of the challenges that I found just in building companies in healthcare is that you want to get people who understand enough of the like how does healthcare work? How does the data flow? And you want that expertise. At the same point, you want orthogonal thinking. And so the, the challenge is hiring people who are willing to or have the ability to think differently about the problem or the domain that you're asking them to come and, and look at. And so that's always the tension. In tech, it's a perfect example. Like they can't do it without the clinical <coughs> expertise or the understanding of how the, the healthcare system operates or the patient experience. And I think that's one that people often overlook is that they try to apply what they know about consumerism because they come out of that world, but they actually don't take the time to really dig into what is the healthcare experience for people. It's hard to find it in one person. So team-based right. agile approaches is really what I find works. Do you think out of all these tech companies, Alphabet, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, which one do you think is most likely to succeed first or or the other side, less likely to succeed? Don't buy stock on this one, because this is totally me just guessing. I think you're going to probably see, a, if you're talking about scale players, you'll probably still see more of an impact from an Optum, for example, just given their size and what some of the moves they've been making. In the pure tech world, I think that it's right now it's a horse race on you know the Alphabet, Amazon, Apples, and Microsofts. I don't really put Facebook into that mix at this right. point, just because... I don't think they have a, as clear of a strategy. But I wouldn't bet against Amazon. From my time working at Haven, I got a glimpse into that culture. And their ability to innovate at scale is one of the things that was most impressive about Amazon. Great. Well, buy some stock. Just kidding. <laughs> Beyond big tech, what is your perspective on retailers moving into healthcare, like CVS, creating clinics, Walmart? I'm curious what you think about. You know, if you think about they're trying to play to their strengths, as we just talked about with the tech incumbents. Right? Clearly, if you're sitting in CVS's seat or Walmart's seat, you are always terrified of Amazon. 
right? They've already eaten your lunch in retail. And so you're trying to now play to your strength. And the strength that I think they have, which they're recognizing, is local presence and a brick and mortar. Because all of healthcare can't be delivered digitally, you need to have some brick and mortar presence. You need to have that human to human connection. And they already know, in the case of a CVS with Aetna and Caremark, for example, they already know the healthcare system better. And so I think you see them trying to play to their strengths, which is I can be within you know five to 10 minutes of 97% of people in America. It'll be even more fascinating to see if they can figure out how to align it for where they're taking risk or managing risk within their retina population. And then I think they've got to look themselves in the mirror around what are they going to do with the PBM equation? Because I do think there's some misaligned incentives that could start to emerge if on one hand you're trying to help the patient and and the other side, you're trying to maximize the amount of drugs at, at brand because that's where you make your margin. So Walmart, it, it's too early to tell, but I think if you, again, think about the tests that they're running with their primary care clinics, they also have the same footprint. The part of the market that they get access to on a regular basis is really the heart of America. I think the question will be, is it primary care that they end up providing or is it a version of urgent care? And the challenge will be for both CVS and Walmart is also getting the business model to tie back to that. Because in some ways, if you're not taking and managing risk and you're on a fee-for-service chassis, it starts to have you move towards volume of care instead of actually total outcomes of care and the total experiences, which is ultimately, in my view, the high ground to be on as the healthcare system changes. Right. There's a danger that it wouldn't help healthcare costs in general. It would actually just... Just adds another access point and layer. In terms of the news in healthcare recently, Iora raised a Series F. I'd love to hear what your opinions are in terms of new models of care, especially in primary care players such as ChenMed and Oak Street Health. I am a big fan of, of those models. It's been a na- very active week in that space. So Welsh Carson did a deal with Humana for $600 million for their partners in primary care. Uh, the Iora, $126 million that went into uh, their F round. What I like about them is that they are focused on a population. They are willing to go at risk under Medicare Advantage contracts, and they're building the kind of infrastructure, people process tech, that is designed to go and manage that risk. And I think if you, the degree to which you can keep that aligned, I think they've got a much better shot. The concern I would have on any of, on that is that they're still sort of brick and mortar first, and they're sort of building, you know. They're betting on a market, they're doing market entry, and the only concern I have would be on rate of scale of those, but clearly with a good capital infusion, and if they've built process and a great team, uh, they should be able to overcome that. When you mean the challenge in terms of brick and mortar, do you mean they should shift maybe more towards virtual care or telemedicine? or more digital Yeah, points. well, I'm looking forward to hearing your podcast with Matt McCambridge right. over at Eden because I'm a exec chairman of that company and I've been spending time there. Part of the, my reason to go work with Matt, not only is he an incredible entrepreneur and you know super talented with his team with Scott and the rest of the execs, but I really like that model, which is that they've, they've hacked together some pretty interesting things uh, to drive growth. So they're digital elements, but then they recognize that human component and you still need that hands-on medicine, so they have the brick-and-mortar piece. Given the crowded landscape of healthcare employer benefit solutions and benefit managers facing fatigue, how would you advise a startup to succeed in this sales process? It's a hard question, and you know, I think particularly for early-stage companies, is you know f- seek out 
you're going to have to go talk to a bunch of them. But make sure you're solving a problem that you can sort of get their head wrapped around, like why that problem needs to be fixed and why an incumbent isn't fixing it effectively for them. And if they were to solve it, what value would that create for their employee and for them as an employer? And I think that, you know, that's why diabetes caught wind early because it's a much wider swath. So do your work around making sure you're picking, you know, if in an employer space in the commercial Without seeing the data, I could probably tell you what the five things are. It's going to be diabetes or chron you know, chronic, led by diabetes. It's going to be cancer. It's going to be maternity. It's going to be musculoskeletal and mental health, right? So do your work. And then, then there's a thousand other sort of areas um, driving costs, but it's only touching a small percent of their spend. So I would just say if you pick a problem that's too small, it's going to be really tough to get their attention. Um, so just do your math, like know what you're up against and then also find potential partners. So I think there's more aggregators of point solutions that are beginning to emerge both digitally as well as through services. And so if you can potentially find an end around, which is go through an existing channel, somebody who already has that relationship with the employer, somebody who already is engaging their employees, who's looking for solving a problem for that person, you might get better luck as a secondary channel. So in terms of being an advisor and chairman and on boards, how do you balance all these roles, especially when a lot of these organizations have different missions and different team structures? One, you want to find really interesting companies that you can quickly add value to. Two, you don't overextend yourself. So while you know, I've tried to not overboard just so that I can help them, and I try to spend almost a day a week at Eden, for example, just to be on the ground. And you know, I think it's just back to picking like any job that you're looking at is do you believe in the mission do you believe in the team and is there an opportunity to do good and if you put that together usually you find that it's not hard to shift hats I was wondering for business school students or people looking for their next career in healthcare, what advice do you have for them I you know I would just say find the team find the mission that appeals to you at the end of the day you're gonna put so much of your mental energy and your physical energy into these companies to help them build and scale pick a problem that really is interesting to you like, don't do it because, oh, this could be an interesting way to make a dollar. If you do whatever you do well, you're going to have a financial return, in my view, if you picked a good company with good fundamental potential. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us on the Pulse podcast. Please note, we recorded this podcast in front of a live audience at a fireside chat with Wharton. We have edited and shortened the recording. 